Non enim erubesco evangelium. Quia potestas dei est in salutem omnicredenti, judeo primum et greco. Quod in justitia enim dei in eo revelato evangelii, justitiam, justitiam autem, que ex fide est a primo, sicut scriptum est, lustus autem ex fide vivet. Good evening. Amen, I think. How would you feel if that was your experience of church every week? Imagine if that's what you had to sit through every time you came to St. Mary's. I don't know about you, but my Latin is pretty rusty. It's an exclusive language that, if read out every week, would leave us feeling confused and lost at best, and bored, disillusioned, and frustrated at worst. This was the regular pattern of our services here. Well, we would be completely dependent on the preacher to explain the biblical text to us, wouldn't we? We've heard Ruth read that passage, impressively in Latin, for us, but we have no idea what she was saying. Now, I could stand here now and say whatever I wanted to, and affixed to it biblical backing, and you would be none the wiser. This passage says we have to do this, or say that, or never think that, is what the Bible tells us to do. If this was the norm, I imagine you'd very quickly be looking for another church to find yourselves at on a Sunday, a church where they actually read the Bible in English. For us, as we sit here on Sundays. That's what we expect. God's word read and written in our own language. But go back 500 years and this most definitely was not the case. Go back 500 years and we see English men, women and children having to listen to readings they couldn't understand. Having to listen to sermons they could only hope were based on what the Bible actually said. Go back 500 years and we see a proud and ambitious king and a church that was corrupt and in complete turmoil. Go back 500 years and we see the beginning of the Reformation. Go back 500 years and we see England's greatest ever Bible translator, an individual known by the name of William Tyndale. This evening, as we come to our uh, end uh, of the 2 Corinthians series that we've been looking at in the evening services this term, and head into our various Christmas carol services, we'll be reflecting on the life of this man and the legacy that he has left us. And we'll be doing that through the lens of Romans 1. So Ruth is now going to come back up again and give us that reading, and this time in a language that we can understand. So Romans 1, um, verses 16 and 17, which can be found on page 1128 of the Bibles. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. 
just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Great, thank you, Ruth. Let me pray for us as we start together this evening. Father God, we thank you so much for your word to us. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us to now listen to what you have to say to us through it. We ask this in your name, for your glory. Amen. What are you ashamed of? Have a think. What is it for you that you definitely don't want to be associated with? I love my parents and 99% of the time I'm delighted to be able to spend time with them. But there's that 1% where I find myself at a family wedding or family party and to my horror, there they are on the same dance floor as I am. And I'm sure you can empathise with me. There are a few things more embarrassing than dad dancing. I do everything in my power not to be seen with them as they break out their dance moves. In that moment, I'm ashamed to be seen with my parents. But for us, more seriously, do we find ourselves feeling ashamed of the faith that we have as Christians? Do we see the Bible as some antiquated book, great for people 2,000 years ago, but about as up-to-date as my dad's dance moves? When we're on life's dance floor, do we want to be associated with Christianity, with the Bible, with God? It often feels like Christianity has never been less popular than it is today. And because of that, we're very quick to apologise for how offensive people find our faith. We often find ourselves feeling a bit awkward, a bit embarrassed by our not particularly impressive-looking belief. And yet, what does the Apostle, pay, uh, Apostle Paul say here in these verses? I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's right there in black and white. Paul says it for everyone to hear. He's not embarrassed in the office when he's asked about what he believes. He doesn't feel awkward when his friends ask him what he did on Sunday. Paul is more than happy to fully associate himself with the Bible. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. And William Tyndale was another man who was not ashamed of the gospel, a fact that permeated every aspect of his life. A fact that we will see this evening changed our history, our history of our nation forever. But how can we have that boldness? How can we have that confidence in God's word as these two men had? In our increasingly gospel-hostile society, how can we say with Paul and with Tyndale, I am not ashamed of the gospel? For you, it might feel this evening like you're very far away from saying that. Well, as we look at these verses, we see that it is by realising what the gospel truly is that will enable us to go from shame to pride, from apathy to wholehearted passion. In these verses, we see four key aspects of what the gospel actually is. And this evening, as we unpack those four points, we'll look into the life and work of William Tyndale and see how those truths affected him and enabled him to say, I am not ashamed. Firstly then, I am not ashamed of the gospel because... It is good news. 
The word gospel in the original Greek simply means good news. Good news. And immediately this pushes against so many of our society's preconceived ideas about what Christianity is all about. A list of rules, a restrictive way of life for extremists, lots of do's and don'ts, judgment and condemnation. But strip those misconceptions away and at its very heart, the gospel, the Christian message is good news. Hearing important news matters, doesn't it? If I hear that Liverpool have won or lost in the last week, that news will probably affect my mood for the rest of the day. Or if someone close to us is engaged, expecting, moving away, seriously unwell, news affects us. This good news of the gospel is the kind that transforms our hearts and minds, every part of our lives. William Tyndale knew the gospel of good news and it completely transformed his life. Born just before the turn of the century, around 1494, Tyndale uh, went on to study at Oxford University, enrolling at the age of just 13. Not too shabby, you might be thinking. He received his Bachelor of Arts uh, and later a Master's in the Arts of Philosophy, graduating in 1515. However, whilst he had spent much of his youth there, Tyndale was not an Oxford man through and through. On completing his degree requirements, the university student came away with a refined knowledge of Latin and logic, Latin being the language of the academic community as it was the language of the church. But a student would come away with little else other than that Latin and logic. One of Tyndale's biographers writes that the curriculum at Oxford, despite being closely bound to the church, offered no Bible study. And this is what Tyndale was hungry for. And what caused him to say, they have ordained that no man shall look on the scripture until he be trained in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles, with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of the scripture. Oxford gave Tyndale the tools he needed to move forward, but he wanted more than the life of an academic or the life of another corrupt priest. And it's at that point that Tyndale's gaze was set upon Cambridge. Well, up until that point, a scholar by the name of Erasmus had been teaching. Erasmus was big news. He didn't just have a great hat. If not the greatest scholar of the age, he certainly was the most famous. And it was at that point in time, in 1516, that Erasmus finished, published, and printed his Greek translation of the New Testament. Why was this such a big deal? Because it was the first translation to seriously challenge the Latin Vulgate translation that had been dominant for about a thousand years. This New Testament was the first Greek translation of its kind. And in writing his Greek New Testament, Erasmus was calling for the translation of the Bible into the vernacular into all mother tongues. Christ should not be hidden, hoarded, disguised 
or left unheard. This good news was too good to not share, just like Maltesers, I think. Erasmus, in his preface to his Greek New Testament, develops this thought, saying on the screen behind me, this translation brings you the speaking, healing, dying, rising Christ himself. This was truly good news. And Tyndale found himself completely captured by this translation. And he poured over it and spent his precious pennies to read it late into the night. It opened his eyes to the true goodness of the gospel. And it also opened Tyndale's eyes to the corruption of the church at that time. Which leads us on to our second point. So we've seen when the gospel was unlocked, it was understood to be truly good news. Uh, But secondly, we see that we do not need to be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation. In our two Corinthians series, we've recognised a number of times just how weak the Christian faith looks, just how pathetic the cross of Christ appears. And yet, we're showing that it is the very weakness by which God brought about, about his salvation plan. We look to the place of execution, to the nails and to the cross, and in that weakness, we see the power of God. We see how he, sees, uh, how he saves all those who trust and put their faith in him. It looks weak but it's the power of God to save a sinful world. And back 500 years ago, the message of the cross looked weak then too. It's important to recognise just how corrupt the church was at the beginning of the 16th century. Tyndale's uh, biographer writes, the ecclesiastical orders had amassed themselves in the name of God enormous riches and a great proportion of the land. And on this, they claimed to be exempt from taxation. Sounds familiar. Religion was divorced from the life of holiness. In a word, the church was rotten, sunk, in the sloth of selfishness, forgetful of its high calling, false to the trust it had received of God. It's a damning critique, isn't it? But one that was fully justified as extortion, greed, relics and indulgences were what circulated the church at that time rather than love, forgiveness, and truth. Following on from having his eyes opened to the goodness of the gospel and the depravity of the church, Tyndale left Cambridge and returned to his county of birth, Gloucestershire, in 1522. At Cambridge, Tyndale was amongst some of the greatest scholars and academics in Europe at that time but he was among men predominantly of words and thought, and not of action. Tyndale, equipped with a new understanding of the gospel, was driven to do more, driven to act. He filled the role of tutor to two boys in Little Sodbury Manor, and it was there that he discovered his ultimate calling. When he wasn't teaching his students, he was either walking the 15-mile journey uh, to Bristol to preach 
there, or reading and contemplating the depths of God's word. Into that context of a dry, dreary, dead church that sought to exploit the people that it failed to serve, Tyndale read these words, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation. Tyndale could look at the church around him and realize that salvation wasn't through touching relics, such as the splinters of the cross of Christ. It wasn't through paying for indulgences to get loved ones out of purgatory. It wasn't through legalistically doing good works. It was through the gospel, which is Christ Jesus crucified. This and this only was the way to be brought salvation. It could not be earned, bought, or worked for. It had to be given, and given through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Tyndale knew in his heart and in his head, he knew that despite the power and wealth of the corrupt church, this gospel was where true power lied. the power of salvation. And it was in that knowledge that Tyndale grew more and more bold in his opposition to the practices and false teachings of the church. Thirdly, we do not need to be ashamed of the gospel because it is for everyone who believes. Paul makes it clear in his letter to the Romans, this is good news, this This good news, this offer of salvation was available not just to the Jews, not just to all non-Jews, the Gentiles, but to everyone, to the whole world. And it was this truth that spurred Tyndale to make his boldest move yet. Whilst residing at Little Sobry Manor, the Walshes, who were Tyndale's employers and personal friends, and who were also close to King Henry VIII, would have prominent guests who would come and dine with them. Having the endorsement of the Walsh household, young Tyndale was free to take part uh, part of the discussions at their table. And he came into contact with professors and bishops, and he took these opportunities to express his views and opinions on the state of the church in accordance to what he had read in the scriptures. Tyndale would hold his own in these debates and would often leave the other parties flustered and frustrated by his sure knowledge of God's word, something that made Tyndale increasingly unpopular with the church. However, ignition truly came when over one of these dinners, a learned and wealthy man, frustrated that he could not get the better of this scripture-quoting priest, rose in a rage and said, we would be better off without God's law than the Pope's. In other words, what the Pope says trumps what God says. For this, Tyndale gave perhaps one of the greatest comebacks of all time. I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spare my life before many years, I will cause the ploughboy to know more of Scripture than you do. This is where it all kicked off. You see, for Tyndale, he had taken those words we read in Romans to heart. This good news of salvation was for everyone. 
not just for the Latin-speaking elite, not just for the clergy and the wealthy. No, enough was enough. Salvation was available for all, from prince to plowboy. And no corrupt pope was going to stand in the way of that truth. Tyndale and his words were fire. Fire that would spread across the nation, which meant it was too dangerous to stay a little sobry manner. And so Tyndale left. He left the comfort of this easy lifestyle. His leisure days were now all behind him. Tyndale firmly accused the church, saying, you have wrestled the knowledge of the scripture into a kind of tangle, dark, twisted, and opaque, little resembling anything like itself or the truth it keeps. It was time to make an English translation. It was time that God's word was made available to all. The gospel is the power of God that brings, that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And with that truth uh, setting Tyndale's resolve, he approached, he approached the Bishop of London for sponsorship and protection as he sought to undertake this translation work. But the interview uh, between these two men in 1523 did not go as Tyndale had hoped it would. Unknown to Tyndale, his reputation had preceded him, and he arrived in London labelled as a lowly scholar who sought to stir up trouble in the church. The, uh, the politically ambitious Bishop of London would have nothing to do with Tyndale or his translation project. The bishop even went so far as to gather together all the printers of London, only seven at the time, and warn them against printing any heretical material from this man, Tyndale. All new books would have to uh, first be approved by the church board uh, censors. This particular door was firmly slammed in Tyndale's face. But the project was far from over. Tyndale went from London to Luther. He would travel 600 miles east to Germany, where at that time Martin Luther, seven years on from his 95 theses, was growing in importance and popularity. His, writing, his writings being circulated all over Europe. The truth behind Luther's drive in laying the foundations of the Reformation was salvation through grace alone, by faith alone. This, too, was Tyndale's understanding, that salvation through grace was available to all who had faith. Tyndale gave up his home, left his nation, took on new horizons, tackled new languages, because he knew that the gospel was the power to save, and he desperately wanted everyone to know that for themselves, as they read God's word in their own language. And thus brings us on to our fourth and final point. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the way to know God and know life. After travelling around Germany for the best part of a year, Tinder was able to complete his English translation of the New Testament. He went to Cologne 
to get his translation to the printing press. And by 1525, the English gospel began to slowly materialize. 3,000 copies were printed. However, this was unquestionably against the law. The scriptures in any common language were forbidden. And it wasn't long before the church, who had eyes everywhere, discovered the work of Tyndale. He was forced to flee or face captivity. And in his haste, in the haste of his departure, all that was saved was the Gospel of Matthew. Years of work had literally gone up in flame. But Tyndale was not to be deterred. He sailed up the Rhine from Cologne to Worms, where Luther had uh, four years previously given his Here I stand, I can do no other speech. It was to be the printing presses of Worms where Tyndale would finally produce his first complete New Testament in 1526. The first Bibles of the Reformation were printed there in Worms, Luther's in German, and Tyndale's in English. And wonderfully, shortly after, copies of the New Testament were circulating London. He had done it. He had done it. For the first time, England had a New Testament in its own language from the original Greek. Today, you can visit a college, uh, uh, yes, a college in Oxford that Tyndale attended and see this stained glass window of the man himself. Underneath this portrait is another picture, a picture of a printing press with his life goal inscribed above it. Every man in his own language. And underneath it, the word of God grew and multiplied. Just how groundbreaking this is, is something that we who have had Bibles in our own language our whole lives will never be able to fully get our heads around. Imagine reading and hearing the Christmas story for the first time in a language you recognize as your own. Tyndale, for the first time in English history, gives God room to be God. Gives the English room to know God. In Romans 1, verse 17, we read, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. At long last, through God using Tyndale in this incredible way, an entire nation could have revealed to them the righteousness of God. They could be introduced to God, know him closely, and through the good news of the cross, be made right with God. They might be righteous in the eyes of God. Verse 17b, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What kind of life did Tyndale live? Well, after his New Testament was printed and circulated, life only got harder for Tyndale. Over the final years of his life, Tyndale would face increased hardships and real suffering. In 1530, whilst sailing to Hamburg, his ship was caught in a winter storm and wrecked on the Dutch coast. In the disaster, Tyndale lost all his books and manuscripts. 
Throughout this time, Tyndale was under continual threat of arrest with papal and royal agents hunting him wherever he went on the continent. Living in hiding, often alone and isolated. In 1531, the king of England, King Henry VIII, exiled Tyndale from his home country. He would never see again his own nation, never see again Gloucestershire, never see again his home. And in the following year from this, things grew from bad to worse. Residing now in Antwerp, Belgium, under the constant threat of danger, Tyndale received weekly reports of his friends and countrymen. A friend who he had helped convert whilst at Cambridge had been burnt at the stake. Countless others arrested and still others subjected to torture to the point where they recanted their faith. We can only imagine how hard all this must have been for an isolated Tyndale to hear as the persecution became increasingly prominent. And yet, despite all this, Tyndale continued to trust God and continued in his work. Over his time in Germany, over those years, he had also learnt Hebrew, as you do. And he now put, his, uh, put this to use in translating the Old Testament into English from its original language. Despite all the suffering he had undergone for the sake of the gospel, even now, Tyndale was not ashamed of it. He was not ashamed because he knew it was life. He knew great pain. He knew great hardship. But he also knew that the gospel which he defended and translated was the means by which he would have eternal life with the God he loved and trusted. It was this sure knowledge that would carry Tyndale through the dark final chapter of his life. Henry Phillips was a young university graduate of London, refined and educated, but he also had a severe gambling problem. Penniless and power-hungry, he was the perfect candidate to seek out Tyndale as an agent of the church on the continent. He found Tyndale's hideaway in Antwerp and over time befriended him and got to know him to the point where Tyndale invited him to dine with him and even invited him to stay with him at his residence. On notifying the officials, Phillips had set the trap, which he personally led Tyndale right into. In 1535, Tyndale was betrayed, arrested, and imprisoned in the local castle, where he was subsequently charged with heresy. The final 16 months of Tyndale's life were brutal and cruel. And yet, even then, Tyndale continued to trust and serve his God. It is recorded that Tyndale's prison guard and his entire family were converted by his witness during that time. Throughout his imprisonment and subsequent trial, Tyndale never wavered in his faith, even when he was condemned to die. On the 6th of October in 1536, William Tyndale was strangled and then burned at the stake. 
His final words that he cried moments before his death, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Within months of his execution, an English Bible had the royal blessing. His final prayer had been heard and answered. Shipwrecked, alone, betrayed, arrested, and executed. Like Paul, Tyndale knew what it meant to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to take up his cross and follow him. This ordinary man was able to do extraordinary things for the sake of the gospel. As we close, let us thank God for the way in which he uses men and women like Tyndale to bring about his good purposes. And let us have a renewed appreciation of the book that lies in front of you. As we realise exactly what this gospel is, let us love it, let us read it, let us allow our lives to be shaped by it. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the good news? Are you ashamed of the good news of salvation for all who believe? Of the way in which that we can know God and know life? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Let me pray. Father God, we want to thank you for the life of this man, William Tyndale. We can look back now, 500 years later, and recognise the incredible influence that he had upon his time and upon our time as well. Help us in response to what we have heard tonight, to what we have seen in your word in Romans, to cherish the gospel, to love the good news, and to never be ashamed by the way in which we have salvation. Help us to do this for your glory. Amen.